right, so last week we were in Matthew 22, uh, verses 15 through 33. Remember any of the highlights from last week? I want to bring back up. It's, it's a good point to make because usually when you're preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, the only people who aren't your enemies are other Christians. So I, sometimes people who are usually enemies will come against you. That's why you give it to Jesus. You see this in open air. You'll see uh, people who are homosexuals and people who are professing Christians. They'll come together against you. You'll see Muslims and professing Christians come against you. You'll see atheists and Muslims come against you. Yeah, the next, you know, next day the atheists will be refuting Islam, supposedly. So, that's generally how it works. And why, why were the uh, sad you see sad? You see. I wasn't here last week, but I knew that when they didn't believe in the resurrection. Right. Amen. <laughs> And uh, we saw a difference between uh, we saw what Jesus meant when he said that we'll be like the angels uh, in, in heaven or in the kingdom of God. Um, what, what does he mean by that when he said that in this passage? Right, there'll be no more offspring. That's the whole point I think he's making here. Um, whether we're going to be in the kingdom with our own little house, we'll be by ourselves, like a one, you know, bedroom apartment or whatever it is. I don't know exactly what that'll be like, or whether we'll cohabitate with the, the spouse we had when we died. I don't really know. But the point, I thought the point Jesus is making here, the point he's making here is that there'll be no more reproduction. And in that sense, we'll be angry, because at, by, at that point in time, he'll have all the humans he wants. Just like from the beginning, he had all the angels he wanted. That's the point he's making here. And when, when Jesus quoted uh, this passage from Exodus 3, saying, when he's speaking to Moses through the burning bush, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, what was the point of him quoting that? And how does that prove the resurrection will happen? Right. I mean, obviously, we, we believe Abraham, Isaac, and J- Jacob are alive in Hades right now. But that wasn't the point. The point was, the promise he made to them is going to be fulfilled. And what is that promise? They'll inherit the land. And they can't inherit the land unless they rise from the grave. So that proves the resurrection. And that God is not a liar. The Sadducees are calling God a liar by saying there is no resurrection. Okay. And we stop at verse 33, uh, just for time purposes. So let's start in verse 34 today. Well, I'm just going to read it through. I know we did it through last week. I'm read it through the end of the chapter. And then we're going to touch on some other uh, topics here in a second. <coughs> when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. 
One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. So the Pharisees come along uh, once again after they see Jesus refute the Sadducees. And they would have been happy about this because the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. Uh, in fact, if you wanted to go to Acts 23 and verse 8, you could see when Paul was taken to, uh, into captivity, he noticed in the crowd there were Sadducees and Pharisees. And so he cried out, it's for the resurrection of the dead I'm being judged today. And they all turned against each other. And then he was allowed to be released. And so the Pharisees uh, were probably happy. I mean, he probably refuted the Sadducees better than they ever have or ever could imagine refuting him on this topic of the resurrection. He went straight to the books they believed in and trusted in the five books of Moses. He went to Exodus to prove to them that the resurrection of the dead is true. And so they were happy about this. And then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, now you notice Jesus' response here, he doesn't call him a hypocrite. Okay? But if we were to go back to uh, verse 15 uh, through verse 17, when they're asking him a question, they're being hypocrites. Whoever's asking this question, he called them hypocrites in verse 18 of Matthew 22. Well, there's, diff uh, there's a reason why. Let's go to um, Mark's account of the situation here. In Mark 12, <coughs> verse 32 to 34. And uh, we'll see this one Pharisee, or this one scribe who asked him this question. You'll see Jesus' response to him, and why I believe he didn't call him a hypocrite to start out with. Verse 32, I think that this guy was being sincere in his question of him. And the, the scribe's response to Jesus, after Jesus answered the question the way we just read, he said, well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is no other but He. And to love Him with all the heart, all, all the understanding, with all the soul, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Wow. Not many Pharisees, not many scribes will say such a thing. And this is Jesus' response to him. Now when Jesus saw that He had answered wisely, He said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. At that, no one dared answer Him a question. And so there's this one, uh, this one scribe here, who is with the Pharisees, uh, was not far from the kingdom of God. He was an almost Christian. We all we need to understand, being not far from the kingdom of God is better than being far, but you're still outside of it. You're still outside of it. Even though this man, this, man, this, this scribe, was not far, he was still outside of it. And so he had correct teaching. He had correct doctrine. He agreed with Jesus. But he was still outside the kingdom of God. We need to let this sink in, friends, because we can have correct deep teaching, correct doctrine, we can agree with Jesus, 
and still we can be close to the kingdom but still be outside of the kingdom but that not be said of any of us that we're outside that we're close but we're not in you can be just outside the gates and still be outside and what's outside weeping gnashing of teeth outer darkness the bible calls it so but going back to this this answer jesus gave of loving the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul, with all your mind, and the, the, the Pharisees said, with all your strength, with all your understanding, which is equated with all your mind here. And, and what, is, what is love in God's eyes, from our perspective towards Him? Obedience. Obedience. But let's, let's go a little deeper than that, because uh, love to God is not just so, not keeping a certain set of rules. Okay? Keeping these rules, keeping the laws of God, obeying God, should flow from a relationship with them, okay? If your Christianity consists of checking boxes to rules you're obeying every single day, and that's all there is to it, don't fool yourself. You're not a Christian. Eternal life in John 17, 3 is knowing God the Father and the one he has sent. That's eternal life, friends. Now, if someone has eternal life, of course, they're going to keep the commandments of God. That's how they show their love for God. But I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a little saying that I think I learned a long time ago. I've been applying to my own life and others ever since then. I think it's a very biblical statement. It's this. Rules without relationship equals rebellion. Rules without relationship equals rebellion. And it won't just apply in a relationship with God. I'll tell you, friends, if you give yourself a bunch of rules to obey, but you don't actually have a relationship with Him, you're spending time with Him in His Word, in prayer, you're going to rebel. Because you don't have the power and the strength to overcome that you need because you're not walking in the Spirit. You're not getting in that prayer closet like you're supposed to. And you're going to fall every single day. And, and you're going to let those fallings not provoke you to say, oh, I've got to muster myself up now. I've got to check this box tomorrow. You need to let it say, well, I need to get in my prayer closet more. That's what you need to let it say to you. I need to get in the Word and spend more time with God. I need to have a closer relationship with Him. That's what it should tell you if you're failing. Let it teach you that. And not only does this apply to a relationship with God, but it applies to every relationship. You see, my children, the five plus my, my nephew that I have living with me right now, I give them rules to obey, rules to keep. But if I don't have a relationship with them, they're going to rebel, 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 rebel. Because they have no heartfelt love towards me if I have no relationship with them. It's just a bunch of rules from the keep. And so this works in every area of life. And I've seen that. I was a youth pastor. I know youth ministry, I believe now, is unbiblical. But I was a youth pastor at one point in time, according to the knowledge I had at that point in time. And I saw this happen all the time. All the time. My parents would expect their children to do some certain thing, and they wouldn't do it, and they would rebel, either while they're in a parent's house, or once they got out, because they had no relationship with their parents, and they had no relationship with God. They would rebel against, against the, what they were taught by their parents. And no amount of teaching from me, no amount of rules given from me, or no amount of rules given to your children or teaching to your children is, gonna, is going to replace the relationship we're supposed to have with God and with other people. It's not going to replace it. And it won't bring about the results that you desire, if you truly desire obedience. And so I, I, I want you to remember that. Rules without relationship equals rebellion. I've seen it true. It's, I think it's biblical. I've seen it true in experience in other people's lives and in my own life. 
And so love, love for God is obedience to him, but that obedience must flow from a love relationship with him. A love relationship with him. Love for people, the second greatest commandment, which, of course, flows. I mean, if you love God, you're going to be like God. And does God love people? Yeah, so you're going to be just like him. You know, you know that saying that you know, whoever you hang around, you become the most like? It's true. You hang around Jesus, you become like him. You hang around sinners, you become like sinners. That's the way it works. That's the way it works most times. And so love for people is wanting their greatest good. Okay? Love for people is wanting their greatest good. And the greatest good for every single person out there is for them to know Jesus, from to have eternal life, from to know the scriptures, from to repent and come to the knowledge of the truth. And so love for people is wanting their greatest good. And their greatest good uh, may be told to them or may be shown to them in different ways. It can be manifested in a kind word. It can be manifested in help them, helping them in some way. It can be manifested in preaching the word of God. It can be manifested in rebuke. It can be manifested in a harsh word. There's many ways to manifest love, but your heart towards the person you're loving is their greatest good. Their greatest good. That's what a love for people is. And the, 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 this, uh, the scribe realized that this was greater than all their burnt offerings. Greater than all that stuff. And it's it's funny, his friends must have kind of looked at him weird if they didn't notice about him. Huh? What are you talking about? That's the law of Moses. How is love greater than that? See, they were missing the point. And we'll, we'll see more about that next week when we get to Matthew 23. <coughs> okay, so in ver and then in verse, uh, so he responds to them now, that, and they don't ask him any more, ask him any more questions at this point in time, because they, they, they've played Stump the Preacher. They've played it, and they've lost. They've played Stump the Preacher, and they've lost. Now it's just Jesus' turn to stump them. Let's see who wins this time. And the Pharisees were gathered together, and Jesus asked them all. He said, who do you think about the Christ? What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, the son of David. Now, is, is Jesus the son of David? Yes. Jesus didn't say he wasn't. But he's saying, listen, there's another sphere here about the, about the uh, Messiah, about the Christ, that you're not getting. What was Jesus put to death for? Claiming to be the son of God for blasphemy. I mean, they were questioning him, and they didn't rip their clothes until he said, I am the son of God, basically. And so he, he was claiming to be divine. And one of, the, one of the times that they, in the Gospel of John, when they wanted to kill him and stone him to death was because you, being man, make yourself equal with God, they said to him. And so he's trying to show, listen, you're going to make this accusation against me, but I'm going to tell you right now, David called his son Lord. Now, in today's day and age, that might actually happen. But back then, the son's always below the, the, the father. Always. Always. Even if the father is 85 years old and he's wearing, uh, you know, depends, the son is still below the father. You know, in our day and age, we got it all backwards, man. I'll tell you, in America especially, the old people look at it as just, oh, he's an old geezer. He doesn't know anything. Just an old geezer. And the teenagers grow up, not hoping them in here like this, but they'll grow up and they know everything. No one can tell them nothing. It's backwards. In those days, if you had silver white hair and you were old and had a big old beard and you were been around for a long time and you had wrinkly skin, 
they looked at you as if you knew everything because you've been around the block a couple times. And they got it all backwards in America. The teenagers know everything. The old geezer knows nothing. But it's all the way around, friends. The old geezer, even if he's a sinner old geezer, he knows probably knows a lot more than most young people. Of course, now the Christian old geezer, who's been a Christian for a long time, you need to listen to him. You need to respect authorities. Look up to such men. Don't look down upon them, but look up to them. Not because they can play sports, or because they're good at games, or better than other people at certain things that really don't matter when it comes to eternity, because they know they've been with God. They've known God for so many years. They know His Word. Their Bible is just falling apart. That's the kind of people we should look to and respect and honor because they've been faithful to God for so long. Those are the people we should look to. But, you know, back in, the, uh, in today's day and age in America, we got things all wrong. we got it all backwards. But the son is, is never called Lord by his father. That never happens. And so this, there can only be one solution to David, who is in that culture, where the son is never above the father. There's only going to be one answer to that. Is that he preceded the father. His, his source actually before the father. And so what we see here quoted in verse 44 is Psalm 110. It's one of the messianic psalms. I, I would encourage you in your own personal time to study Psalm 110, to read it through, to get it down. <clears throat> Great proofs in there for Jesus being the Messiah, being the Son of God. I mean, just look at verse 44 here for a second. It says, the Lord said to my Lord. Now, in your Bible, is the first Lord in all capitals? Is the second Lord in all capitals? No. The first Lord's in all capitals. The second one isn't. You know what that tells you? Is that in the, in the Old Testament? The first Lord is Yahweh. The second one is Adonai. So there's a distinction being made here between Yahweh and some other Lord who Yahweh is going to say to this other Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. This is great proof for the Trinity here. Unless you're going to, unless you're going to uh, believe in polytheism, this is a great proof for the Trinity here because Yahweh is saying to Lord Adonai, sit at my right hand, which is the place of honor. Okay, that's what it is, the place of honor. Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So it's a great proof for the Trinity. Yes, brother? Did you say this, the second Lord wasn't capitalized? Yes, all capitalized. They're both capitalized, yeah. Well, no, I'm saying the whole word is capitalized for the first word. word. The uh, second Lord, not all letters are capitalized. Yes, okay, I see that. Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to confuse you there. Yeah, so when you see all capital letters in the word Lord in the Old Testament, it's, taught, it's the, uh, the Hebrew word Yahweh. Tetragrammaton, okay? So but when you don't see all capitals... In the Hebrew, it's Adonai. Okay? So Yahweh is saying to uh, David's Lord, who's also his son, he's saying to him, sit at my right hand so I make um, your enemies your footstool. And they have no answer for this. Because the son doesn't, uh, a father doesn't call his son Lord. Can you imagine me calling Malachi Lord? I mean, it, it wouldn't make much sense. Could you imagine John calling Daniel Lord? No, it's not the way it works. But this can happen in this situation because Jesus, when he came in the flesh, it tells you he was alive. He, was, he originated way, way before David. 
he originated before him. And so he's kind of almost giving them a warning here. Because he knows what they're going to, he knows what they're going to crucify him for. He knows what they're going to accuse him of. What crime they're going to accuse him of. And he's touching on it right now, ahead of time. So, that's a good proof for the Trinity. Now, I want to I talk about this, uh, your enemies, your footstool. So let's talk about that just for a little bit here. Um, what does this mean that he wants to make his enemies uh, his, his footstool? What, what, part of, what part of your body is on the footstool? The feet. Okay. Let's go to Joshua 10, 24 here for a second. I'll give you some Old Testament pictures of this uh, footstool thing. Joshua chapter 10 and verse 24. And of course, the Israelites are going through and taking out these nations that are in the land that God's given to them. And uh, after one of these victories, we see in Joshua 10, 24, it says, So it was when they brought out those kings to Joshua that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the captains of the men of the war, of war who went, went with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they drew near and put their feet on their necks. Now what do you think it symbolizes right there? Victory. Yeah, victory. So you, you see that when, when, Jesus, when God is saying this to Jesus, he's saying, I'm going to give you victory over your enemies one day. And Joshua, when, when he led the Israelites into victory against these foreign nations, with God's blessing, one of the ways he symbolized that was this, come here, uh, men of Israel, put your feet on the necks of your enemies. We have beat them. We have vict victory over them. They are, as John said, in subjection to us. Uh, 1 Kings 5.3. This is Solomon talking about his, his father, David, how he was, a, he was a man of war and didn't build the temple. And it says in verse 3 of 1 Kings 5, You know how my father David could not build a house for the name of the Lord, his God, because of the wars which were fought against him on every side, until the Lord put his foes under the soles of his feet. So we have again victory, subjection. And David was a man of victory. He won a lot of wars and a lot of battles. It also symbolizes authority, putting the, uh, your enemies under your feet. Go to Hebrews 2, and verse 5, verses 5 through 9. <coughs> Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. And before we go, this is Hebrews 13, probably the same page in your Bible here. And he's talking about the distinctions between Jesus, the Son, and the angels. So this, not only does it symbolize victory and subjection, it also symbolizes distinction and uniqueness. Because it says in verse 13, he's using this as a proof. He's quoting Psalm 10.1 as a proof that the Son is greater than the angels and unique to the angels. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? 
So it's it's a it's a verse used by Paul the Apostle in Hebrews to prove there's a distinction, a uniqueness between Jesus the Son and these angels. Who of course you read on in verse fourteen are ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. And so there's a distinction here. The Son of God is different. God doesn't say this to angels. He says it to the Son. Now go to Hebrews 2, verse 5. For he's not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. There's a subjection thing John was talking about. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. And just, just to clarify here, for a little while lower than the angels would be a more literal translation there. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands and have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who has made a little lower than the, for a little while lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he may, by the grace of God, they, that by the grace of God he may taste death for everyone. And so we see once again that there's there's an authority issue here. He's putting all things subjected under him. He's reigning over them. Uh, and for a little while he was made lower than angels, not as far as authority, but as far as nature, as far as human beings being lower than the angels in their nature, uh, and angels having authority over humans. So he was made in human flesh. For a period of time. Uh, but all things will be put under him. And we'll see in a little while there is one thing set to that in 1 Corinthians 15. But there's an authority issue. Then there's a judgment issue. Go to Genesis 3. All the way back to the beginning here. Genesis chapter 3. So making your enemies your footstool means victory. It means uniqueness. It means authority and subjection. <clears throat> and it means judgment. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, the Lord talking to the serpent now, he says, uh, talking about, uh, let's, let's go to verse 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, talking to the serpent now, between your seed and her seed, probably the second seed is capitalized there, right? Mm -hmm. Referring to Jesus. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, if a serpent is bruising the heel, and that same heel is bruising the head, what contact do we have there between what two body parts? The serpent's head and the person's foot. So he's foot. He's putting him under his feet. He's now his footstool. And so there's judgment coming here. And we'll, we'll go to this in a second here, uh, more about this serpent's head being bruised. Isaiah 63, in verse 1. says, Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength, I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? What, uh, what part of your body do you use to tread the winepress? Your feet. Your feet. Yes. 
And what what happens if you have uh, if you have clothes on? Obviously, you should have some pants on or something when you're in a wine press. Uh, what part of your clothing uh, gets stained? The lower parts. And what is that? What color does it get stained? Some kind of crimson red. That's right. Why is your apparel red and and your garments like one who treads in the wine press? I've trodden the wine press alone. Oh, so who's going to destroy the enemies? Jesus. Anybody else? Oh, so I guess we're passing non-resistance to the end, huh? And from the peoples, no one was with me. For I have trod them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, but there was no one to help. And I wondered, but there was no one to uphold. Therefore my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury had sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. Hmm. Some word to think about there. Is that your Jesus? The kind, gentle, and meek Jesus? I'll come with that a second time. Let's go to Revelation 19. Yeah, when you think about what Jesus is going to be like when he comes back, you automatically think Isaiah 63 and Revelation 19. Those are the two pet chapters of the Bible you pick it up. Probably more than anything else. There's other ones, of course. Revelation 19 and verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. Where do you think he got those crowns from? From these kings he put under his neck, put his feet on their necks. You're my footstool now. Give me that crown. Many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a white robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now, whose blood is on his garments? His. Oh, so it's not his blood, huh? No more Jesus' blood being shed. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He comes to rule on this earth. That's the beginning of the millennial reign. So we see that this making your enemies your footstool is, is victory over your enemies. It's uniqueness and distinction between you and everybody else. It's authority and subjection of your enemies. It's judgment of your enemies. And finally, that's when the resurrection happens. And so here we are on Resurrection Day. We're not on Easter Bunny Day. You know, what, what do bunnies and, and eggs and candy and chocolate and uh, Easter basket have anything to do with Jesus rising from the grave. Easter oh, we should go look for some, some little plastic eggs with money in them. That has nothing to do with Jesus Christ rising from the grave. Yes? Uh, I'm sorry, but, but people say that the egg, you know, the chick coming out of the egg represents the resurrection. New life. That kind of thing. Yeah. That. Yeah. Yeah, it's too bad Easter bunnies don't uh, they don't lay eggs. It's too bad, huh? 
Oh, that Cadbury bunny in that commercial. Like, he laid an egg, didn't he? Yeah. That should mean that rabbits lay eggs. And I mean, it's, I'm not saying it's wrong to have symbolism to represent certain things. I mean, people around Christmas time will say that the tree represents... Because the evergreen tree, never the, you know, the pine needles never go away. They don't shed their leaves like the rest of the trees do. And so they say, well, evergreen is, is the sign of everlasting life. Well, maybe that's one of the reasons God put the evergreen tree uh, in, in this world. But, uh, you know, I'm of the impression that if we're going to use symbolic things, maybe we should use biblical symbolism. I mean, we see uh, this is the time of the Passover. We should celebrate the Passover, you know, this time of the year. So celebrating Easter bunny hunts and uh, stuff like that. Yes, brother. Uh, we can talk about it later, but I, I just did a paper today, this morning, in fact, uh, talking about how Easter has its origins in the Babylonian mystery religions. Right. Yeah. And Ashtoreth, which is mentioned in the Bible, is where Easter comes from. Right. Yes. Yeah, I'm well aware of that. I, I like to read that. Appreciate that. And it's not something, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that, you know, there's lots of people who are ignorant about these things. And so I'm not by any means saying that if someone does an Easter bunny hunt and they're ignorant about their origins of it and they're not having idolatry in their heart towards those things, that that's necessarily sinful for them. But we need to educate ourselves. Uh, we need to seek after truth in every area of life and then obey the knowledge we have. But let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. Let's talk about the resurrection for a second here. And when you think of the resurrection, this is like the main chapter you, you think about. Where it's talking about Jesus' resurrection or our resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15. That should come to mind right away. Just like that. Okay, so let's read. Let's start in verse 1. We're going to read it through, and I'm going to stop along the way and just uh, touch on some things here. <coughs> Starting in verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand. So he's going to talk about the gospel, what it is here in a second. But which you also are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, which is Peter, then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. That means they died. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen by me also as one as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. By the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, and not I, but the grace of God which was with me. <coughs> Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, who have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. You know, most times when it comes to salvation messages or Christianity, the first thing people think of is a cross. You know, we get the necklaces we wear and the steeples, the church steeples, and they think cross. But 
And this is probably actually a better representation of what Christianity is all about. It would be an open tomb. The stone rolled away, the tomb is empty, and Christ is risen because the, the death wasn't where it ended. And um, if, it says right here, this is an interesting statement here, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Hmm, interesting. So this, this rising from the dead has something to do with delivering people from their sins. You know, so Christ's death on the cross is not all that is needed. He must rise from the grave as well. Defeating sin, defeating death, defeating the grave. If that doesn't happen, we're still in our sins. And so, a lot of times, people's view of the atonement only encompasses the death of Jesus on the cross. There's never a talk of the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. And so, if our theory of the atonement only encompasses this death of Christ on the cross, and we start making all these theories about what exactly happened there, and someone doesn't believe our theory, they're a heretic, and you know, so on and so forth, but we don't encompass the resurrection of Christ from the grave. There's something wrong with that. And so we need to make sure that in our preaching of the gospel, in our sharing of the gospel, we're, we're including this rising from the grave. Uh, not just his death, but his rising from the grave. <coughs> but if he hasn't risen, our faith is futile, the people who are preaching are liars, and we are above all men most to be pitied. Yes. So he has risen from the dead. Okay, so go to verse 20 here. But now Christ is risen from the dead, and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You know what that means? That means before, you know, these people who don't believe in the abode of the dead, the Hades, they'll say as soon as people die, they go straight to heaven. Well, we do know from this statement that at least before Christ rose from the grave, and went to the right hand of the Father, before that, there were no people in heaven. He is the first fruits, the first person to rise from the grave. Okay? <coughs> For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as an Adam all die, even so in Christ all must be made alive. Well, let's stop right there just for a second because people use it as a proof text for original sin. This is talking about physical death here. Okay? The question becomes, why do people die physically? Okay? Most people who believe in the doctrine of original sin would say, well, they die physically because they've sinned. And therefore, if babies die, that means they must have been sinners. That's what they'll say. Well, I have a question for those people. If they say that, then Jesus is a sinner too, because he died. Not only that, but animals are sinners too. They died. Okay? But the reason we die, and oftentimes we'll use Romans 6.23 as a proof text for this, but that's talking about spiritual life there. The reason we die, go to Genesis just for a second here, so touch on just for a second, and we'll see why we die physically. We die physically as a direct result of Adam's sin. But we don't die spiritually, and we're not separated from God as we live Adam's sin. We don't go to hell for Adam's sin. We're not accountable to give an account to God for Adam's sin. We die physically for Adam's sin. It's a natural consequence of what happened in the garden. Genesis chapter 3, and starting in verse 22. <coughs> and the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand, and take also the tree of life, and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden, 
and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so if Adam, after he sinned, would have eaten from the tree of life, he would have lived forever. And so God said, I'm taking you out of the garden, Adam. I'm going to protect the tree of life with angels. You imagine trying to get in there? I wonder if there were some people who actually tried to get to the tree of life anyway. I mean, the Bible doesn't say anything about it, but there were sinners on the earth. I mean, in the garden, that tree was there, as far as we know, until the flood at least. And then maybe it was taken up into heaven, or maybe just God let it get destroyed. But the fact is, it was there. Can you imagine someone trying to take fruit from this tree while this angel is there with a sword? Yeah, that wouldn't have been too, too pretty. Uh, but he took... He, and when Adam was kicked out of the garden, all of his posterity was kicked out of the garden with him. All of us. All the people before the flood were out of the garden now, and all of us are out of the garden. And the garden's no longer there. The flood destroyed it or was taken up to heaven. But even where it was, we have no idea where it was. Okay? We know in the garden there was two rivers called Tigris, one Euphrates, and we have Tigris and Euphrates in the Middle East. But that doesn't mean it's the same river. It could just be that when the floods stopped and the waters descended, that someone knows the sentence and said, well, I like this river here, I'm going to name it Tigris, name this one Euphrates. And they knew it from the Garden of Eden. So even that doesn't prove that's where it was. We have no idea where it was. It could have been in Florida for all we knew. I mean, that's why, uh, you know, that one explorer was looking for the fountain of life there. I don't know. But the, the point is, we don't know where it was. And that's why we die physically. That's why it says in, all, in Adam, all die. If you're a descendant of Adam, which is everybody, you're going to die physically. Now, the only exception to that is if you're alive when Christ returns. Okay? But in Christ, all shall be made alive. Now, in some sense, all will be made alive because all will get a glorified, resurrected body, even people in hell. Why do you think they can burn for all eternity and never perish? And their bodies don't burn up because they have a glorified, resurrected body. Okay? And so all will rise. Now, when does this happen? Verse 23. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, he's the first, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. So when do those who are Christ get resurrected? At his coming. At his coming. Not before then, but at his coming. So there's no secret rapture pulling away and then another pulling away later on. We get resurrected at his coming. And we won't get into too much of that right now. But uh, And then it says in verse 24, what happens after that? Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. There's a footstool. All the kings of the world will be under his feet. All the ones who rose up against him will be squashed under his feet. He'll have the, their blood on his garments. He ends all rule and all power. And then who does he uh, who does he give the kingdom to? He gives he delivers it to the kingdom to his father. And it says in verse twenty five, for he must reign, for he's put all enemies under his feet. The last man that will be destroyed is death. For he's put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, here's the exception here. It is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. So who, what's the, who's the one thing that's not put under Jesus? By the Father. Another good proof for the Trinity here. How is that possible if, if there's only one person in the Godhead? There's three persons. There's one God. And all things are made subject to him. Then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, 
that God, the Father, that's what he's talking about there, may be all in all. Okay, go down to, uh, to verse 50. First uh, fifteen. <clears throat> now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Notice corruption and inherit incorruption. But I tell, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, like John just said, the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption, and this mortal is put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? Or Hades, where is your victory? Because Hades delivers up the Christians, and death no longer ever again has any power over any Christian. That's why we have no fear of it. We don't fear death. The devil would love for us to fear death, because he wants to get us to deny the faith and the threat of death, and the threat of losing our life, deny the faith, deny Jesus Christ when they're suffering and persecution. But death has no sting on us because Jesus has conquered it. And because he has conquered it, we will conquer it as long as we persevere to the end. And then one more verse I want to give you. No, a couple more, couple more verses. Revelation 20. So you think resurrection from the dead, you should think uh, 1 Corinthians 15 and Revelation 20. Those are the two passages you can think of. More than anything else. Revelation 20, verse 4 through 6. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast nor his, or his image, had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, is it just those who were beheaded who lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years? No. First Corinthians 15 clarifies that once again. It says in verse 23, But each one is on order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. So all who are Christ are risen at his coming. They're just highlighting one group here in these verses. But the rest of the dead did not live again until a thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy. Wait a minute. I thought we sin every day. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. So only the holy will have part in the first resurrection, and they are blessed to take part in it, because such the second death has no power. They shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. So the holy will reign with him for a thousand years, and they are blessed for doing so. One more verse, John chapter 6. You know, I kind of overlooked this before. I've even done a video on John 6 because of Calvinism trying to use it to support their doctrine here. But John 6.40 is a good, uh, a good uh, verse to use to say when we'll arise from the grave. It disproves the pre-trib rapture. And it says in verse 40, And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I'll raise him up at the last day. And so the will of the Father, is the will of the Father always done? The will of the Father is your sanctification. But that doesn't always happen. It hasn't happened for every Christian. But they always stay sanctified. The will of the Father who sent me, that everyone who sees him, that's talking about those who are seeing him in person right then, and believes in him, that's a present continuous believing in him, may have, 
That's called the subjunctive there. May have some possibilities, probabilities. So he's even saying those who are believing in him right then, presently, they may not have everlasting life. But if God's will, they will have everlasting life. And that they'll be raised up on the last day. When are you raised up? On the last day. When is the last day? When Christ returns. He comes back to judge and put all things under his feet, except for God the Father, who put things all, all things under him. And so he will make... So this, this putting all things under his feet and making his enemy as a footstool is victory over his enemies. It's uniqueness and distinction between him and other beings, angels, humans. Authority and subjection. It's judgment upon his enemies. And it's pointing to the resurrection when Christ will return. And so Christ has risen. We will rise. The question you have to ask yourself, are you going to be part of the first resurrection? Well, you have to be holy. You'll be blessed to be part of that resurrection. Or are you part of the second resurrection? And the second resurrection, for those who are alive today, that's your only part of that one. Because then he casts people into the lake of fire. In Revelation 20, uh, and in Revelation 20 for more about that. And so Christ is trying to prove to these people that he is the Son of God. He is the Lord who David talked about, who Yahweh talked about. And he will have his enemies as his footstools. Will they be his enemies? A lot of them were. A lot of them will be his footstool. They'll be under his feet. They'll be trampled out. Okay, so we just uh, de detoured a little bit from the main passage this morning, but it all comes into uh, comes to bear with verse 44. And with the day we're, we're, we're celebrating today, the Christ rose from the grave. Okay, does anyone have any questions, objections, or things they want to add uh, to what was said today? Okay. I just wanted to point out, uh, maybe it's a minor thing, uh, but the chapter and verse that we have in the Bible today was not present uh, back when Jesus was speaking. And something that they did was, when you want to call your members to a psalm, you, if you quote the first, first verse. verse of that psalm, and it brings you the remembrance about that psalm. So when Jesus was saying, uh, The Lord said unto my Lord, uh, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thy enemies thy footstool. Uh, the people he was speaking to, the Pharisees, and, and everybody was standing around, the, the, the legalists and all that, uh, they would have known that it was Psalm 110. Right. Now we would say, okay, now we go to Psalm 110. But they would have known that whatever he said that, he's talking about that entire psalm. Right. Uh, so I, I believe that's part of the reason why they were silenced and they no longer asked any questions after that because they thought about that psalm right. and they know that that's talking about the Messiah coming and establishing his reign. Uh, so I, I believe that was all part of what silenced them. Right. But it's important, anytime you see Jesus quote from a psalm, he quotes it perfectly, and he goes back to the very first verse of that psalm, that's exactly what he's doing. He's, he's drawing your attention to the entire psalm. That's a minor point, but... <clears throat> yeah, I'll go ahead and read it real quick. Just the seven verses. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power, in the beauties of holiness, in the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. 
He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. More judgment, more wrath, more execution. More of what's going to happen when he returns. The, um, the Middle East is a great disrespect to show the soles of your feet to other people. And when they, we, uh, when I was in the Navy, we went over there as one of our port briefings. Do not, do not sit like this or sit like that towards the Middle East there because the sole of your feet mm. is a curse to them, a disrespect to them. And so even, um, of course, the I'll include the, the Jews in that as well. It's all in their Middle Eastern culture, so the Arabians and the Jews, and the, they all have that same thinking uh, about the souls of pizza. Having to do with authority and subjection, and, and uh, that they've kind of twisted it into a, a cursing. And for those that are under the feet of Jesus, it is cursing, it's yeah. an eternal cursing. Curse for today, yeah. And, uh, I wanted to bring up uh, concerning the tree of life. We see that again in Revelation 22, mm-hmm. in verse um, 14. Uh, no, 22, uh, verse 2, in the middle of the street, and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree, uh, tree yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. So the tree of life is not gone, it's uh, now in the kingdom, and will be revealed again in that place where we desired as well. Yeah, the question is, where is it now? Or is this just the same same kind of tree Jesus brings back? I yeah, mean, I'm not saying it's the same yeah. tree. I'm just pointing out that there's a tree of life that shows up again. Interesting that you can see a tree that bears 12 different kinds of fruits. Wouldn't that be amazing? Each season has different fruit. Well, this, you know, this, this month is going to have apples, next month is going to have peaches, and then Papaya and then pineapples. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's going to tap in the taste buds we don't even use yet. <laughs> Who knows? I just wanted to add on to what uh, Brother John was saying about the soles of your feet being disrespectful and uh, trotting things under your feet would also be disrespectful. Uh, the object of what you're trotting under your foot has absolutely no meaning and means nothing. Right. And you know, if you look in uh, Matthew 5, 13, it says, You are the salt of the earth, but yeah. if the salt hath lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and be trodden right. under the foot of men. Right. Uh, so Worthless. that just shows, shows that illustration again. Right. Yeah. yeah, when you step on something uh, and act like it's not even there, you're basically treating it like it's worthless. What you're doing. Bugs, grass, dirt. I did that with the Book of Mormon out in Salt Lake so <laughs> Okay. Uh-oh. That's about <laughs> That's right. That's a pretty good illustration. That's about where it belongs. <laughs> so. yep. Good. And in verse 14, Revelation 22, it says, who will have the part of the tree of life. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and 
sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters who are loves and practices a lie. week from here on out. Right. You know, it's been the last week, so we're in the last week. So the first, you know, two-thirds of Matthew's covering almost three years, but the last third is covering one week. And so it's amazing that the Lord led you to teach us through to this point. It's almost coincidental. Yeah. 